This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and whether you should bring dinosaurs back to life or not. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini, and the answer is no, you should not. No, you should not. Michael Crichton wants you to know. Yeah, you should not. That is the thing that will go badly for you. And I... I hesitate to make a joke out of that because, like, there are actually still people trying to do this for real, like, bringing back mastodons in Siberia and things of this nature. That's a real thing that's actually going on. But it would be so cool! I mean, (laughs) probably. That's the problem, Also terrible. It would legitimately be cool. (laughs) Also terrible. So, we're going to talk about Jurassic Park. And as we mentioned in the first episode on Jurassic Park, Crichton has quite a lot to say about science, particularly its relationship to nature and its relationship to industry. And first, we have to start off with a caveat from me, which is that at the beginning of planning this series, when we were looking at books to do, I said, do we need books about science? That's not quite epistemology. And Chris was like, what do you think science is? And I was like, <laughs> it's not thinking about... Okay, fine. Science. Science is similar to epistemology. <laughs> and so, this was in particular a discussion over uh, Mary Midgley's books. And mm-hmm. actually, I'm really interested in Mary Midgley's books now, so we may end up reading one of them. Chris is already super excited about this. <laughs> so, epistemology philosophically and science have a very close relationship. They are not the same, but they have a very close relationship. And in particular, for the purposes of this discussion and what Michael Crichton is doing, the idea of hubris that links them both is prescient. Before we go any further, I just have to call out listeners that this is the second examined episode Kurzweil examined and now Crichton examined where Stephen gave me the point on a debate we had previously. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> First virtual reality and now science and epistemology. I am winning. I am. I am nothing if not intellectually honest. <laughs> My compliments. I'm going to, I'm going to find a point that I win sooner rather than later. <laughs> It'll happen. I will, I will happily grant it. I think I've granted it in seasons past, but for this season, I'm winning. <laughs> he's, he's on it. So, Crichton is very interested in both nature and science, whether science can mm-hmm. appropriate, approximate, or control nature, those three different aspects of it, mm-hmm. and then whether science plus industry can be anything but a corrupting force. He's a little ambiguous on the first question. He's exceedingly unambiguous on the second question. That's right. Science plus industry equals bad kids. Stop now. Go home. Pack up. Stop. He's not equivocating on that point. No. He is no. He's very concerned about the scientific industrial complex. And to be fair, one of the biggest concerns that we still have 30 years later about science in other countries is that they don't have some of the industrial stops that America has culturally or legally put in place to stop certain types of biological and genetic uh, experimentation. Though also notably, 
this is also still 30 years later, one of the areas where the barriers are most porous, even in the United States. Oh yeah. Fully admit that. But I'm saying that one of the biggest concerns that we have about like science gone amok is genetics. Yep. Genetically engineered diseases and viruses and humans, genetically engineered animals, genetically engineered X pretty much. To call this book prescient would not be overstating it. Nope. Nope. And so it's an important book, which is funny that you would think that. Like, what should I read about genetics and epistemology? Definitely Jurassic Park. Definitely. Go read Jurassic Park. Because, like, I would say that to someone because it's, it, it is such a cool conceit that Michael Crichton loves to ruin it. Like, wouldn't you love dinosaurs? It would be awful. <laughs> it would go catastrophically wrong. Like, oh, oh, man, come on, Michael. This is this this was such a good idea. (laughs) This was great. Like, who hasn't dreamed of having a dinosaur as a pet? But so it's a great conceit. And we'll start with the science and nature bit. If we even get back to the science plus industry bit, he just (laughs) so ruthlessly hammers it that there's not much to talk about there. But if we do have time at the end, we'll get back to that. But the, the science and nature bits are really kind of nuanced. He really carefully approaches whether or not you can appropriate nature. It's like whether you can do things with nature, whether you can approximate nature. It's like whether you can like actually create nature and then whether you can control nature, which is less ambiguous on that Less ambiguous. He gives that one a pretty loud no. And on the approximate note, one thing we skipped over that's an important detail called out in both the book and the movie is the genetic samples they have are incomplete. There are gaps. There are missing bits. And so what they're doing is creating an approximation. And this has all sorts of consequences. They use amphibian DNA. Some amphibians do, in fact, change sex in the wild when the populations are too unevenly distributed, especially if they're just one sex so that they can keep reproducing. Spoilers, this happens in the book and the movie, and velociraptors are doing that thing and things get bad. But his note there is that even in this situation where they thought they fully understood something, they were left with an approximation of what was there before. And who knows how different it is. Yeah. Life finds a way, man. Right. That's right. But the life that has found a way here is not actually the same as the life that found a way back then, not just on this front, but also because they've been doing all sorts of other attempts to control. They've ended up with dinosaurs on their island that are very, very unlike in various ways, unknowable ways, the original dinosaurs. And this is where his claim, I think, is that when you attempt to exert control over nature in this way. And he's not shy about the fact that he thinks this applies very broadly to our attempts to control nature much more broadly and much more generally. He has multiple references to this from Malcolm throughout the book. He talks about it in the context of weather forecasting, which is both like the most pedestrian thing he could have thought up. (laughs) And also it's literally the most complicated thing that humans do. Like, the largest right. computers in the world are running weather forecasts and, and climate predictions. 
and it's astoundingly complex and it continues to have changing and important impacts on human existence through the impacts of climate change and so on. He doesn't think control works. And so he thinks that epistemologies of science and of the natural world that are oriented toward control. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, Stephen, but I think this is a fair summary. Epistemologies oriented toward control are broken in his estimation. And it's it's not a hostility toward understanding, though he thinks there are limits to human understanding. It's that he thinks that the attempt to know in order to control will mislead you and will ultimately prove ruinous. I, I definitely think that he is skeptical that humans can control the number of variables that go into anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that as the number of variables develop, he is increasingly skeptical of <laughs> that you can do it, which is why he uses weather as his main foil for this is because right. you know you have one tiny pocket of pressure, which is literally just atoms bouncing around in a different way than in other areas, and then you have you know a whole front has changed etc cetera, etc cetera. now i'm having flashbacks to leotard's terrible discussion of pressure oh yeah. save me well <laughs> i think i did a little bit more justice than leotard there you, you did you did <laughs> but uh that, my flashback was not your fault okay, it was good. just the words, the words pressure, pressure and air pressure yeah. and i was like oh no oh no it's coming back it to all, me now it all ends up at air pressure how about that no <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, and he definitely shows it by showing that, like, all of their control mechanisms fail because of really dumb reasons, that they just didn't know how to operate a computer because somebody else made it, (laughs) which is a totally reasonable thing that happens. Like, if you've ever tried to look at somebody else's code without a readme, you're like, what is this? Like, you can sort of guess, and they do in the book and in the movie, they sort of guess at what to do. But they don't do it right because it's really hard to do that, interestingly. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's definitely skeptical about control. But I think what's what's interesting is that while he is certainly deeply against the idea that you would do this for profit purposes, mm-hmm. he is against that you should do this for scientific purposes because he doesn't think it's really possible. He never really touches on if you could have a small enough number of variables and you were doing it for pure scientific reasons. Because we never really get around to like the what for science question. (laughs) Right. And so I still think he would be skeptical, but I think there would be, there's enough moments of reverence for discovery in the book Mm -hmm. that I would, I would hesitate to think that he is a total, he has a total block on genetic discovery and research for scientific purposes. As an example of that, the characters he paints in the best light are a paleontologist and a paleobotanist whose work is very much work of discovery, work of learning, work of understanding. Mm -hmm. But to riff on the quote that I referenced last time, it's also a discipline Mm -hmm. that of all the modern sciences still looks the most like a traditional apprenticeship in a lot of ways. It is you learn this physical art of unearthing these things by doing it on your hands and knees in the dust with a group of people that have learned this before you. Yeah. Those are the heroes of the book in a lot of ways. They aren't the the mouthpiece for Crichton, but they're the heroes in the book. Yeah, certainly. 
And what's interesting is that in the book, Muldoon, who has the most respect for animals, because he is a mm-hmm. game warden, essentially, mm-hmm. survives. Whereas in the movie, he gets killed with the excellent line, clever girl. So memorable. Because he's trying to save the rest of the people. Right. And so in both the book and the movie, he, he goes out on a, on a note of being, in some ways, morally upright, if not victorious. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an argument there that Crichton wants us to respect nature more and respect its power and respect its unknowability while mm-hmm. doing discovery. Cause Muldoon is still a game warden. They call him mm-hmm. like the master of zoos and they compare him to like <laughs> an incredibly historic golf course creator, which is really, <laughs> I would not know anything about except that I lived in Alabama. And so he, in his own right has controlled certain things about the world mm-hmm. of nature, but he respects it because of that control. So instead of right. saying that, like, I am in charge of everything, he's pretty much the only one in the book and in the movie who's like, yeah, this is going to go bad. Uh, I've seen it before. <laughs> right. And he, insofar as he does exercise control in that context, it's a control that he recognizes the limits of. Yes. And he and Malcolm throughout the book and the movie are the ones who most clearly articulate the limits of control. Mm -hmm. For Malcolm, this is a sharp philosophical claim. Right. For Muldoon, it is an experiential reality. Right. But for both of them, the limits of your ability to control are fundamentals and Muldoon comes off as well as he does because from the outset in both book and movie, he recognizes that there are limits to what they can control. Right. And they're both proven out in their own distinct ways. Right. And it's interesting. One of the most quoted lines of the book and the movie, (laughs) you spent so much time figuring out if you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. It's actually not, like that big of a point in the book it's there but they actually don't talk about the ethics of creating as much as they do about the control aspects right there's definitely a sense of like maybe you shouldn't have created dinosaurs but they never get into like because you're playing god or because you're making bad versions or because because you're an idiot and this is going to go badly right because let's not make violent dinosaurs right? right like Not because they're talking about the ethics of creation and the ethics of developing life and things like that. They don't really go there. Which is funny because mostly that quote is used to talk about the ethics of life and stuff, which is kind of not the direct point of that quote, but it is the indirect point. So, I, we couldn't get through a whole two episodes without mentioning that quote, so I had to drop that in there. It's true. Also, we've quoted it before, but... You really should go rewatch the movie, but if nothing else, rewatch that brilliant argument slash half monologue of Jeff Goldblum delivering the life finds a way speech because his delivery, his performance there is just so good. Really good. So good. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. It's a good movie. And so I think one of the most compelling things about this is that. It is a good book. It is a good movie. It is a good script. And that it interweaves these ideas in such a vivid way, right? Like, if you wanted to write an essay about, like, the industrial scientific complex, 
You could do that. You right. could also write Jurassic Park and you could come to the same conclusions, but you would be much more disappointed along the way, right? There's such right. emotional force behind this fiction that the ideas yeah. are accelerated. One of the things that I want to push back on a little is Crichton's specific claims about how mastery in science works versus mastery in other kinds of discipline. And I think if you take this and apply it to industrial applications of scientific knowledge, he's he's more right. But the work of getting a PhD in any science, whether that's biology or physics or chemistry or on down the line, does actually still, much as I noted earlier that paleontology or paleobotany are the most traditional seeming and traditional appearing, and as much as I'm willing to grant an industrialization of the academic process in a lot of ways, especially in science, especially in science that is adjacent to engineering fields... I do still think he undersells how much the the work of doing research is apprenticeship-like, for good and for ill. A lot of the worst abuses in academia come out of effectively the power imbalance that an apprenticeship is. There's a discipline in the form of doing a PhD and then doing postdoctoral work and then trying to get tenure. There's a lot of time and effort and discipline that goes into actually accomplishing things in the scientific guild. Now, the key is that in his Malcolm monologue that I read last episode, he doesn't distinguish between science in its sort of, you might call it its pure form. I don't think there really is any such thing, but I think what he would gesture to is a more science for the sake of learning and inquiry and understanding form versus industrialized science with an aim to profit. These are very, very different things, and it is not that the former cannot go amok. There's a reason that curiosity was historically treated as a vice and not a virtue, because knowledge for its own sake has long been regarded as a thing that can actually mislead you in very serious and very dangerous for your soul kinds of ways. But all the kinds of things he gestures at in that speech that I read last episode are necessary for actual scientific work where they become unnecessary is where the only thing you're doing is taking something and figuring out how to grind profit out of it and even that i think he undersells how difficult that work can be and how much investment it can take now i say that as somebody who actually agrees with the thrust of his critique in many ways but i think he has it a little too easy in that monologue yeah I don't know. I work at a university. And so I've seen, even in a university context, and in a good university context, I love my university. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. In other universities I've been a part of, in other universities I see my colleagues be a part of, due to the inexorable financial structures that surround the whole concept of a university, there are just moments where you have to decide whether it's going to be something that you think would be good to know for the sake of your field and for the sake of continuing the knowledge of the world or something that you could turn into a product and sell. 
Mm-hmm. That that, that point happens in many, many research projects. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sometimes people take the the former path and not the the latter path. But it, it's a it's a point that almost every researcher, even I have had to sit with in my various research projects. Like, what do we do with this? And right. so to some extent even in university, which he characterizes as moving slow as molasses <laughs> and being a backwater, which from Hammond's character who delivers that line, I sort of laughed. It's a it's a really well characterizing quote. Yeah. It gives you a very good sense for who Hammond yes, is. Yes, it does. It does. But even in that context, thinking about universities as not the centers of intellectual inquiry and industry and all that it still comes up in industry and in academia. So I think to some extent it's unavoidable in, in a environment that exists in the financial situation that we currently exist. It's unavoidable that you have to make these decisions and that if you're driven by money, the university is not the fastest way to get that money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just true. not. And then if you're in an industrial lab and you can get it out faster than your competition, if you cut some corners, maybe you do that. Right. Like, you know, this is essentially the story of automated driving, right? And why there was an (laughs) incredible, bizarre lawsuit over like one person moving from firm to firm to firm. (laughs) Right, because this is the the thing. It's like it's a it's a race. It's not about the knowledge. They're not trying to get self driving cars for the sake of self driving cars. Like self driving cars will eventually be incredibly safe. That is not why they're doing it. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so I do think that to a larger extent than you're granting that this is something that weighs on any researcher. To be clear, I think it is real. I just think that he also overstates his claim about there not being an apprenticeship, a discipline lasting many years, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you think the scientific PhD is, which right. it can look like an apprenticeship. But I think he's less concerned about the physical aspects of the apprenticeship and more of the ethical aspects of the apprenticeship, like the discipline, the sort of moral force that fences the work. Mm -hmm. And I dare say there are a lot of labs where you can go through a whole five-year, (laughs) six-year, seven-year PhD process and not get any of those moral fences instilled. Right. And so I think that's the argument that he's making is less about the did you get your knees on the ground and go scrape bones and more about the like, did you ever sit down and talk about the ethics of how this works? Did you ever sit down and talk about how we should use this power? And I guess it does yeah. loop back around to the to the famous could should quote. Right. The the specific note that he argues, and this is where I gestured at virtue ethics when we read it aloud last time, is that the discipline of getting the power changes you so that you won't abuse it. Yeah. That there is a formative aspect to how you get the kind of power in question. And I think that's that sentence might be the most interesting claim in the book about the knowledge of science and its kind of power versus these other kinds of powers that his claim by 
direct implication is that there isn't any discipline involved in getting scientific knowledge and power, and that accordingly, there's no inherent transformation of the person who gets it, and therefore no mitigation of the abuse. And I, I think I think what he's saying there, it's it's about the 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 reverence for the discipline. And I think that he's saying that if you go out into industry, you don't have any reverence for the discipline. It's only about money. And so right. there's... Because he says, whatever it is you seek, you have to put in the time, the practice, the effort. You must give up a lot to get it. It has to be very important to you. And once you have attained it, it is your power. It can't be taken away. It resides in you. It is literally right. the result of your discipline. All that is true, whether or not you you have the ethics. And then he says... What is interesting about this process is that by the time someone has acquired the ability to kill with his bare hands, he has also matured to the point where he won't use it unwisely. And I think that's the core claim, is that being disciplined results in ethics that are associated with the process of the disciplining. And I don't think that's true. Right. I don't either. I think there's a, to an extent, this can be true, and it should be true, Mm -hmm. but I think that... I'm sort of with him in that people who go off and do rapacious industrial things certainly didn't have that be true. Right. Now, I think he could have clarified more by saying that like some people go through the whole process of learning and never get disciplined. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, too, you can short circuit his Lewis Dodgson character is a person who short circuited, who failed at the hard work, at the discipline right. of sort of pure research right. and goes and becomes a corporate espionage guy Venture instead. capitalist sort of guy, yeah. Yeah. And and so thematically, I think he does tease that out a bit. But I, I do think the tension is here in this paragraph right. for, for his claims. Right. And I, I agree with you that the process of going through a PhD does not inculcate moral fortitude. But... It's not because there's a lack of discipline for lasting many years to get there. It's because the specifics of the discipline don't have that character-oriented bent around them. Because it does have a discipline lasting a decade. But that discipline is not structured in a way that's oriented around moral intellectual formation. Mm. It is merely this grasping of knowledge mm. and that gets at things we've suggested earlier in the season the grasping of knowledge itself doesn't lead you to virtue yeah it doesn't even lead you to wisdom yeah having the ability to understand facts on the ground doesn't produce virtuous or wise outcomes inherently even if it took you a lot of work to get there and that's yeah. that's part of my difference with him it that that hard work has a virtuousness to it, perseverance and discipline, those are good things, but they don't inherently produce these other virtues that are also necessary. Yeah, and I, I think I would say that I think it can. I think that some disciplines, some disciplines rightly applied, maybe all disciplines rightly applied, have an ethics that installs fences. That rightly applied is kind of the tricky bit. Yeah, though, right? uh, yeah. But that's what I'm, we're talking about ideals here, right? Like, right. he thinks that even in the ideal form, scientific power, he literally calls it just scientific power, like, right. as if there was no variations of what scientific power means, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. He, so I, I'm saying that, like, his 
version is too sweeping. Right. Which is almost exactly how I opened. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what I think. It is It is an overstatement. Right. It is an overstatement of a true thing he's identified, right. but he carries it further than... I think the missing link in this chain is that he wants to say that if you go into industry, you haven't been sufficiently disciplined. You mm-hmm. wouldn't go into industry if you had been sufficiently <laughs> disciplined. That's what he wants to say here. Right. I don't think that's true. No. And... Because he doesn't make the strong claim, he has to dance around it, and then he ends up making some accidental claims along the way that you and I are taking offense at. Because that's what he really wants to say here. That's what the whole book is about. It's like, don't go into science for the money. You will get killed (laughs) by dinosaurs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and the the challenge there is that there is also a discipline involved in quote-unquote productizing or industrializing, however you want to describe it, certain kinds of knowledge that can also be a matter of deep discipline and deep investment intellectually. Yeah. But the temptations are higher because the the rewards in industry, financially speaking, are much more readily available if, as you suggested earlier, you cut corners. But I often have this front of mind because in my job, day by day, there are products of research... Mm -hmm. very much cutting edge academic and very much non-industrial research Mm -hmm. in computer science that are relevant to my job and thinking about how do we translate those into things that I can take and teach to and build tools that work for just the ordinary developers on my team and in my company. Those are equally difficult problems in many ways and they require years and years and years of investment and work of an entirely different category and so that's the other place where i would differ though i agree with him about the structure of the temptations because they're real and i would argue that we have had so few examples of thoughtful (laughs) non-rapacious product development in a major scale like Mm -hmm. with self-driving cars, you know, like there's just (laughs) example upon example upon example of like this ghoulish race to the bottom to, to be the first there at any cost. There's so many examples of that, that even when we say things like there is a discipline of business and producing well, it's hard to come up with examples for that. You know, we've we've on the show right. pointed out the few that we can come up with and, and find because it is so hard to find, right? That's why we have gravity payments and ghost in our Hall of Fame is yeah. because like the discipline of business and of industrial business and of R&D industrial business is, is it's just, it's hard. And right. it and is it's very rare. It's very rare to find people who have been sufficiently disciplined into the ethics of producing in a, I don't even know how you would ex- describe it, right? Like, how right. do you. A, a wise way, a way that respects the boundaries into which we've been set, that does not see them merely as things to be overcome, torn down, but things to be treated with care that respects the world around us rather than treating it merely as a thing to be devoured. Which is hard when every one of your opponents in the game is like, yeah, we don't care about that. Right. And so it it's, I, I feel with Crichton why he's saying this because it Mm -hmm. is so rare to find a principled 
set of <laughs> circumstances yeah. for a field, even even not calling out individual companies, but like just right. the the shape of the game that is self-driving cars, right? Just the shape of the situation means that there's just not going to be a whole lot of principled acting. Right. There's going to be a lot of industrial sabotage and industrial entrepreneurship, quote unquote, industrial entrepreneurship. <laughs> I mean, this is the whole premise of the book is that there's industrial sabotage going on and it's what is the downfall of the whole enterprise. Right. And it's a commonplace at this point to say that there are structural incentives and reasons why those things are true. Yeah. And that's true so far as it goes. But I think my closing note here is as a challenge for us and our listeners to keep thinking and wherever possible acting in ways that change those structures. Right. So we spent all of season five talking about the interplay between structural force and individual mm-hmm. agency mm-hmm. and the yeah. fact that neither of them is as supreme as the dominant competing narratives of our culture might suggest. Yep, that's and true. Therefore that when we confront industrialized scientific power, which is in many ways the reigning ideology of our age on all fronts political, we can and should resist it. And that resistance will take different shapes depending on who you are and what your vocations and giftings are and what your context is. If you are a stay-at-home mom raising five children, that's going to look really different than it does for me. Right. But we both have responsibility to act and to act appropriately. And especially if you're someone who's working at the confluence of science and industry, have we got a challenge for you? Challenge the first part, go read Jurassic Park. Challenge the second part, think hard about Jurassic Park. Yeah, and tell us what to do, really, because some of this is just... Don't tell me what to do. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Some of this is, is beyond the scope of my own discipline, right? Like right. this is beyond epistemology and philosophy and communication, which are the areas of theoretical expertise that I have. And it, it goes into how do you act appropriately given a set of moral imperatives that right. you have. So I am sympathetic to those who are like, whoa, 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 you're throwing my whole industry under the bus here. Like <laughs> I probably am. That's probably true. Like, I don't have the requisite expertise to be able to explain anything but the outcomes of what has happened in those situations. And there are a lot of times that the outcomes are bad. And sad, but true. And in Jurassic Park, they are super bad. The music at the beginning of the episode was Pull Apart by Summer Rooms, featuring Samantha Eason. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. It doesn't have anything to do with dinosaurs. It's about a breakup or something. It's kind of sad. It is sad. Unless you're breaking up with dinosaurs. Unless you're breaking up with dinosaurs, which they do at the end of the movie. Or maybe breaking up with science and the scientific industrial complex. Again, there's somebody out there who's like, I hate this episode. (laughs) I hate them. (laughs) And that's fair. If you'd like to tell us how much you hate this episode <laughs> or how much you love this episode, you can email us at hello at winningslowly.org. 
find our Facebook page at Winning Slowly Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Winning Slowly. Or if you support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash winning slowly, you can jump in our ongoing medium of discussion for chat and long form paragraphs, half essays and all of the like on Twist. Uh, You can also support us on cash.me at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Thanks to everybody who sponsors the show. We appreciate you. And as always, thanks for listening. I somehow managed to get through a whole episode without starting to hum the theme. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> like that big of a point in the book? Like it's it's sublim it's not subliminal. It's subliminal, guys. <laughs>